vengeance. I am the knight. I am... Matt Lazowitz, and welcome to this week's episode of Bat Chat with Matt and Will, a Batman ranking podcast. Where each week, my co-host Will Nevin and I dig into three Batman stories, discuss them, and rank them on our big board, thus creating a giant list of Batman stories from best to worst. Will, how's it going tonight? Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, dearest Matthew. Happy birthday to you. Thank you kindly. Yes, yes, indeed. We are recording three hours before the clock officially turns over and I become 42. Hopefully when I will learn the answer to the question of life, the universe and everything, or I guess the question to the answer, since we already know the answer is 42, but I kind of doubt it. Nah. Well, that's good. Um, we can always remember that you are five years older than me. Yep. I just turned 37. My sweet summer child. <laughs> <sighs> I'm old. <laughs> I'm not that old. No. And it's no. only as old as you feel. And most of the time, I don't feel that old. And then there are those days when it's damp out and my ankle hurts and my knee hurts and it's like oh yeah i guess i am getting up there ain't i but those days are few and far between and i'm happy to be here and talking about batman because and, and look look i promise when the time comes we're going to take you upstate to to a nice farm where you can run and play with all the other podcasters and uh you'll you'll never see it coming can I see the rabbits, George? Yeah, oh, of course. Oh, okay. I'm going to see the rabbits. Uh, but yeah. So as we did with Will's birthday a few weeks ago, I just went in and I went and I picked three stories, not entirely from my youth. Two of them are definitely from my youth. And one of them was a little newer, but is still... 20 plus years old so it ain't exactly new and decided to just go with stories that i remember either really liking or at least being fascinating in some aspect or another and let me give you a spoiler alert dear listeners uh matt did a much better job than me uh in terms of picking stories that would make for uh enjoyable reading now in my defense I did not pick the follow-up to Batman and Superman versus vampires and werewolves thinking it would be good. I did that out of an, a sense of obligation to close that loop. So that would be done that, that, that sword of Damocles would no longer be hanging over the podcast. I took that burden upon myself, but Matt, Matt just is like, let's, let's just pick some good stories that we could read that I remember enjoying. We'll discuss where they all fall, but I don't think there is anything quite as painful as Batman, Batman versus the undead. Uh, no, Mm-mm. no. But if you look at the list, there's very little that's more painful than Batman versus the undead. Out of 174 books, there are precisely three that are more painful than Batman versus the undead. Yeah, it's it's. 
pretty bad. It's very bad. Not the most bad, but very bad. But none of the stuff tonight is even going to be close to that. We're going to start with The Nobody. This is Batman Shadow of the Bat, number 13. The writer is Alan Grant. Pencils and inks by Norm Brayfogel. Colors by Adrian Roy. Letters by Todd Klein. The editor is not credited, but being where it falls in the timeline, I would wager it's Denny O'Neill, but I can't say for sure. And the cover date is June of 1993. When a houseless person discovers Batman's secret identity, it sets off a series of events that places Batman's double life in jeopardy. This is the final Grant and Brayfogle shadow of the bat from their initial run. Brayfogle will come back and do a handful of issues later in the run, but that's like much later, like the 50s and 60s. But he really was just on for the last Arkham and then came back for this and then isn't there for a while. And as we've talked about before, when it came to the last Arkham and girls night out and anarchy in Gotham, Grant and Brayfogel were one of the definitive Batman creative teams of the late eighties and early nineties. They worked together a ton and frankly, they're both, definitive creators of that era, even apart from each other, because Bray Fogel did a ton of work with other writers and Grant did a ton of work with other artists. I mean, his run on Shadow of the Bat is 80 issues over various artists. So yeah, I mean, this is two really important creators from my years coming up in Batman fandom. Is this the first standalone Shadow of the Bat we've covered? It feels like it. Yes, it's the first one we've covered. There were issue five was a standalone two, I believe. But yes, this is the only one we've covered. We've done one through four and we did the Misfits, which is seven through nine. We've been hitting a lot of the early Shadow of the Bat. And there's plenty of other stuff later on that's also really good. But this is sort of where we've fallen with this book. So uh, give the good people a history of, of Shadow of the Bat, because it, it strikes me as kind of an interesting thing that, that stood as a very important Bat book for a very specific period of time. Yes. Shadow of the Bat was the fourth Bat title ongoing in the 90s, but it was the third set in present continuity. You had Batman Detective, you know, forever. And then they brought in Legends of the Dark Knight. But as we know, Legends of the Dark Knight, especially in those early years, was a book that took place all over time with Batman and had different creators. This was also a book that was basically given to Alan Grant. It was created with him in mind to write the book. And it was created to be this spotlight on villains and the people around Batman, how Batman affects people. When you see the last His Arkham, shadow, ergo. Yes. yes, the last Arkham is as much about Jeremiah Arkham as it is about Batman. The Misfits spends as much time with Chancer, Killer Moth, Calendar Man, and Catman as it does with Batman. And this is really the story of this nameless houseless person who winds up getting caught in Batman's undertow. 
as the book progresses, it gets a little more traditional Batman. It doesn't always do as much with that, but the early issues are very much themed to this shadow of the bat. And uh, how long does it go? It goes to 92, I believe. And Grant writes the first 80 issues. The last year is during No Man's Land. So it's the rotating creators Ah. from No Man's Land. But Grant covers from 1 to 80. I just want to confirm that because I know it's pretty close to that. Ah, no, through 82. Excuse me. The final Matt, you fucking idiot. Yeah. Grant's final arc is 80 to 82, Road to No Man's Land. And then 83 to 94 is the No Man's Land stuff. <sighs> Curse me and my flawed memory to be off by two issues of comics that came out 23 years ago. Yeah, it's it's just interesting to me because Legends of the Dark Knight launches with just this such such spotlight and attention. Oh, it's only the, the third new ongoing bat title in history. Ah! But this is just a curious little artifact to me. And you, you look around now and so many of the Bat family members have a book, an occasional book, an occasional miniseries. But right now it's only, you know, Batman and Detective that persists. There hasn't been this third or in this case this fourth ongoing bat title you know you get urban legends but that is more of a you know i i feel like dc is going to pull the plug on that any day now yeah i think the final issue was solicited for january or february so i think it's officially well there you go yeah the last time we had four ongoing bat books was It happened in the New 52 because the New 52 launched with Batman Detective, Dark Knight, and Batman and Robin. But with Rebirth, when those books ended, Rebirth just launched with Batman and Tech. And we haven't really gotten a fourth ongoing Batman book focusing, a third, let alone a fourth, ongoing Batman book focusing on Batman. I mean, now technically we've got Batman Inc., but that's really the Ghostmaker book. And and you don't feel like that's going to go on for for very long. No, that's got uh, probably got a year in it unless it really takes off. And by definition, Batman Eternal had a year. At this point, the other Bat books, the surrounding Bat books are miniseries or focused on other members of the cast. I mean, there have been gaps in those books as well. There have been periods where there wasn't a Catwoman book, when there wasn't a Robin book. I mean, Batman and Robin took its place for a while, but still, there wasn't a just Robin headlining title. This was the beginning of the real expansion of the Bat family was Shadow of the Bat. Because you get Shadow of the Bat, and then within two years, you get Catwoman and Robin. And then within a year or two of that, you get Azrael and Nightwing. And then you've got Batman Chronicles, the quarterly anthology. The the Bat family gets real big starting in the mid-90s coming out of Nightfall. This being a one-off, there is... This is a good time to talk about things because there 
there's a lot to talk about in this comic, but it's, you know, just one comic versus when we're usually covering four to five in a segment. Yeah, we got uh, we got five for the whole night tonight. Yeah. Matt, uh, Matt treating himself to an easy week. (laughs) Yeah. There is a lot of meat on this story. There's a lot of meat on the second story. And the third one's just pretty. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. Um, It's got an interesting point to it, but it's mostly just pretty. I'll cape here for a second uh, for just standalone stories. It's so nice to read something that is not part of some arc that is not trying to do 10,000 things. This is a very, I won't say basic story because it does include like, you know, Gotham supervillains and Bruce Wayne kind of stuff in here and uh, disguises and whatnot. But at its core, it's a very simple story of a man who has some bad luck compounds that bad luck with some bad decisions and then gets in a position where I think any of us might make a decision that is inherently selfish that we come to regret. So it's, it's very relatable and we don't often get that in superhero books. And we'll get to it, but the end of this, the final little bit of narration I think is something that on some level or another has always stuck with me. I can see how it would. Because it's how I define who Batman is, which is why I think I picked this particular story. But we'll get to that at the end because I I want to actually read that verbatim when we get there. Oh, I was going to suggest the same thing. God damn it, Matt. You know, we've been doing this too long. We've been doing this too long. This story starts out with this guy who is clearly living on the streets, stumbling into the Wayne headquarters and demanding to see Bruce Wayne. And we know from Grant's other stuff from Anarchy that his politics tend to lean pretty hard left. And we get that immediately as this guy bumps into this business bro on the street and the guy's just absolutely, you know, what are you doing? You bum get a job without trying to see this guy who's clearly not in a good place oh oh if that wasn't enough the newspaper headline voodoo economics the untold story that uh that's not something you're gonna miss no they they're making it pretty darn clear what this guy is and that's the thing he he doesn't get a name and i've i actively have complained about that a couple of times specifically with characters of color But this could be the same kind of thing with a character who is amongst the disenfranchised of society. But that's the point. He addresses himself as a nobody. He's someone who had a bad turn. You find out in the middle of the story, he, you know, was a he had a a, he owned a little store. He had a life. He had a wife and a daughter. And then they were killed in a hit and run. And he hit the bottle and lost everything. And now no one cares. No one notices him. And he's a part of society that is the unknown, that is a nobody. And the kind that is beneath the notice of Bruce Wayne or Batman. Although it is nice that when Batman is fighting with a gang early on and he stumbles literally 
over this guy. He does take a second to stop and try to help him up, even if the guy wants nothing to do with Batman. It shows that he cares. The Batman, in my mind, would never be intentionally cruel or callous to an unhoused person, right? Yeah. He, he might not notice is the wrong word, but he would not like he, he wouldn't stop going after a goon to say, Oh, here's, here's like, here's some services. Here's like, you know, what you could do to, to, to help yourself. You know, he's not going to basically evangelize, but I, he's not going to be cruel. I think. I agree. He doesn't look at these people as criminals. He doesn't look at them as beneath him. He's still Batman. He still is out there doing what Batman has to do. So he solving he, problems that he can punch. Right. I mean, we're not going to get into that discussion. That might be a bonus episode someday discussing the various ways that Batman does and doesn't work in society. But for two seconds on a soapbox, you have to take that argument as frankly, a bad faith argument because Batman exists in a world where there are problems that need to be solved by punching. The superhero genre would be very boring if all the superheroes did was fix real world problems. That is not what superhero comics are for or about. But stepping off the soapbox and back to this particular story. <laughs> Long story short, as most of this issue is a flashback of this guy telling Batman this story while Batman is dealing with a mid-level street gang in a fight he gets his mask knocked off and this guy is the only one who sees him unmasked and Will as is to a point you have made numerous times everybody knows what Bruce Wayne looks like uh yep so the minute this guy sees him unmasked he knows who that is Oh, I just had a very cursed thought. Bruce Wayne is the Elon Musk of the DC universe. Lex Luthor is the Elon Musk <laughs> of the DC universe. Or actually, Elon Musk is the Lex Luthor of the real world. Like, I'm pretty sure Elon uh, Musk saw Lex Luthor and things was like, you know, he's got some good ideas. Elon Musk, though, is a moron. Anyway. Uh, but yeah, I, I think most people could pick Elon Musk out of a lineup. His first instinct is try to blackmail Batman, but then he's like, wait, no, that's a bad idea because he'll find me, which is the lesson that that guy learns in The Dark Knight, which this uh, guy figures yep. out on his own. <laughs> Still one of the best scenes in any of those movies. The more he goes, you would actually attempt to blackmail a billionaire who dresses up as a bat and beats up criminals? Good luck. Is that your plan? So instead, he figures, let me sell this to the highest, well, maybe not to the highest bidder. He wants to sell it to someone to then sell it to the highest bidder. So he goes to a mid-level mobster, this character, Doc Creasy, who just appears here. And it's like, you know, some kind of street level, like above the street level, but not super villain type crook. The, the middle manager of, uh, of Gotham's uh, underworld. Right. But of course, what this guy doesn't, realizes he is you know an unhoused person creasy is a mobster so when he tells him this as opposed to you know sure paying him he basically just pulls a knife on him and it's like you're gonna tell him or i'm gonna slit your throat 
And it, it kind of goes downhill from there with him, you know, ratting out Bruce and Creasy stabbing him anyway. And him then going to Batman, realizing that he made a, a big mistake. So, yeah, it's uh, it, it's a guy making what turns out to be his last mistake. I mean, he pays with this for his life. Hashtag spoiler alert. But again, it's it's very relatable, right? He gets a thing of value and he has nothing. He has no resources. He has no help. He has, again, nothing. And if you have a thing of value, then you're going to try to exploit that value. So it's it's not like we're we're made to feel like this guy is terrible for what he did, but it, he reacts in a very human way. He doesn't try to go to to Joker. He has to try to become, you know, a, a multi-millionaire, right? He just wants, he wants something. He wants to feel comfortable. He wants to feel safe. And this, this would be his ticket to that. So I think he's a very interesting character in the way that he comes to his decisions and the way that he is ultimately redeemed, not for this terrible mistake, but one that admittedly betrays Batman, which seems to be one of the few things that you shouldn't do in the DC universe. And in the end, as he's dying and as he's telling Bruce what is is going on, he's going to give him where the auction that this Doc Creasy is going to be holding. But he just he has one question. And it's like, you know, I and again, I'm going to read uh, this as well. But before I tell you where I want you to tell me something. You're rich, famous, successful. So why do you do it? This city's steeped in evil, rotten through and through. It's built on graft, corruption, greed. It'll never change. You must know that. So tell me, Batman, why do you do what you do? And I mean, that, again, is a good, it's a good question because... I think for a lot of people, why would Batman do what he does? Even if you get beyond the trauma, even if you understand the trauma and such, it's still like he could spend a tenth of his fortune, put more into crime prevention than any government does, and then live comfortably. And this is your point. And this this needs to be underlined and highlighted, and it's a flaw of every story that interprets it this way. Batman's fight cannot be about Thomas and Martha directly, because once you once you avenge them, once you kill Joe Chill in some stories, once you lock up Joe Chill, then that's the end of it. And you're left with a Batman who is directionless and just like, well, I guess I can give it up now. And what we'll get to the some of the final bits of the story now is when to read Batman's final monologue, which is his answer to that question. Oh, what a good final monologue it is. Matthew, take it away. I do it for the weak and the scared and the oppressed. I do it for the victims, the innocent, the abused. I do it to try to end the suffering. I do it for the nobodies. And I think on some level that has always defined who Batman is to me. I think, I mean, I would have been 12 years old when I read this story. 
I think that hit me in just the right way to make me imprint on a certain vision of Batman. And that is over a single page length vertical panel of Batman standing atop some bit of Gothic Gotham architecture, looking down and clearly feeling the pain of this poor lost soul. And the other panels on the page are beautiful too. You know, you have this gentleman, his basically his dying breath and Bruce, the colors here are just magnificent still covered in his blood, unable to compose himself for a minute. He dies and he does the, the, the sort of trite closing his eyelids. And then he goes into the monologue. Like it's just, it's just a beautiful bit of storytelling, perfectly framed. And I can absolutely see it's the, the kind of thing that would stick with you. Brie Fogle. We've talked about how good Bray Fogel is in other episodes, but he kills this issue. This is a slam dunk. There are so many great pages. I mean, we've already talked about in previous episodes, he has a sense of motion that is phenomenal. And you get that here in all of the Batman pages. But there's a lot of facial work with our nameless protagonist and also with Doc Creasy, who's just such a sleaze and Bruce's face when he's dealing with the protagonist and then the anger on Batman's face. There's one, one page when you're hearing those, that last monologue of the protagonist A lot of that is over Batman heading to this auction and the look on his face of just anger at the people responsible. And you also get a really nice little more than third of a page image of Joker. And as we talked about with soft targets, people in general in Gotham, when the Joker shows up, it's bad mojo and they all know it. So Joker teleconferencing into this auction, the look on Creasy's face, because he's got, you know, a guy who represented East End mobs. He's got Penguin's lawyer. And then screen comes up and it's Joker. And this guy's like, oh, fuck. Oh, I fucked up. Oh, shit. I really fucked up. Especially, by the way, he fucked up because as we see, uh, yeah, Joker just sent his goons to pick him up because why should the Joker have to pay when he could just have, you know, people drag this guy away and get the information out of him that way. And Creasy pays with his life for trying to do this. He gets killed by Joker's goon who thinks it's this was a setup. Yeah, you have to close kind of the story loop in this, right? If uh, if some Gotham middle manager knows who uh, who Batman is, uh, we got to take care of him, and this is a good way to take care of him. But I also think there's an episode of Batman the Animated Series, the first Hugo Strange episode. It's I believe the Strange Secret of Bruce Wayne. It's something like that is the title, and in the end, Strange finds out Batman's identity as he does in the comics. And he also here tries to sell it, in this case, to Joker, Penguin, and Two-Face. And in the end, he tells it to them. And they're all like, Bruce Wayne, are you out of your mind? 
that foppish son of a bitch? No. Right. And I think there, there would be the distinct possibility that if he told these guys that, oh yeah, Batman's Bruce Wayne, they'd look at him and be like, no. <clears throat> I mean, frankly, I firmly believe the Joker knows. And the reason he went through all of this effort was to make sure nobody else did. So he could continue to play his game with Bruce. But it's also from Bruce sets up, puts in a news item that he's in Paris and, you know, does makeup under the cowl. So if he needed to unmask in front of Creasy, he would not look like Bruce Wayne. But we can't exactly do the Batman 66 bit where we have Alfred show up in the bat costume. No, we're playing things a little straighter than that here. As charming as that is. It's delightful. But. This is a really strong single issue. Absolutely. I think that's part of why I picked it too. I just, I love a done in one and they're so rare nowadays. Oh, are they ever the closest thing I can remember in a main bat title to getting a standalone issues. I think we got to go back to King's run and the nightmares arc, which was an arc of standalone one-off stories. Yeah. I think there would be a spot in the market for a new Batman title that is just done in ones. I mean, Bat Scoob. Batman Scooby-Doo, they're all done in ones, but that's also geared at a very different audience. And coming back. It's yes, back. Back, week. baby. Oh, one final note, which is just a fun little bit of... Ray Fogel having fun. There's a page where our nameless protagonist, after being stabbed, is literally dropped in an alley by Creasy's men. And there's graffiti on the alley wall. And it's got a bunch of little nods to previous stories and to some of Ray Fogel's other work. It's got the Anarchy A. It's got a Street Demons graffiti. It's got the word Prime, which was uh, a title that Ray Fogel was working on for Malibu Comics right around this time. There's some others that I haven't been able to particularly figure out if they're a particular reference or not. But it's like, oh, that's a neat little thing to throw in there. Uh, I think we've hit the high points. Mm, I had to Google metaphysique and see if there was anything uh, that came up. Ah, that was a title. Ah. By Norm Brayfogle. There we go. Uh, what was for Malibu? Yeah. Oh, another one of his, Ma- another Malibu book. There we go. Dream Big, who is Metaphysique and what is his link to the Meta Program Institute and Dream Right Labs? Criminals try to attack him, but can he reach into their minds and make their most hard nightmares come true? Fascinating. That's the kind of stuff that I love that, Nowadays, somewhat do it in television because of, you know, DVRs and things. But still, comics are the best place for putting those kind of little Easter eggs because you're you're paying attention to each panel on each page. And it's fun to see that kind of thing. And with that little Easter egg out of the way, I believe it's time to a Batman Shadow of the Bat number 13, the nobody on the big board. We are at 174 stories on the big board. God damn. Yeah, we are. We're only a few episodes away from 200. 
Wee! Number one is, as has been from the beginning, Batman Year One, the origin of Batman from the post-crisis era. Number 30 is Tower of Babel, where Batman's plans to get the Justice League are used against them by Rachel Ghoul. Number 60 is Nightfall Part 2, Who Rules the Night? Azrael versus Bane. And coming in at number 69 for the children, it's Brave and the Bold, number 20. Is indeed for the children. (laughs) (laughs) Number 90 is Batman Year 100, the Elseworlds of a Future Batman. 120 is Mad Men Across the Water with the Arkham versus Blackgate baseball game. 150, Robin the Boy Wonder, the first appearance of Robin. And all the way down at the bottom is Batman White Knight. Undisputed, undefeated, king of the shit books. <laughs> so I'm looking pretty high on this one. Top 50. Definitely top 50. Start there. Uh, okay, here's a question. Here's, here's a, a point. Number yeah. 33 is The Last Arkham. Another Grant and Bray Fogel, a little earlier in this run. It is more important to the Batman canon because it introduces Jeremiah Arkham. It introduces Zaz. I don't know if it is as telling about who Batman is as this story. But if we have to factor in import, this is not a trifle because this deals with some weighty topics, but it is not significant in what it does. It's significant in what it says, but not in its existence in the canon. It's your birthday, and I shouldn't do this to you, but I'm gonna. How do you feel about this in relation to Sleigh Ride at number 29? (laughs) That is actually a pretty similar type of story. It's another one-off. It's not hugely important to the canon, but it is a really, boy, I somehow think we might have put the the last Arkham probably should have been above Sleigh Ride, just again for its weight. You know what? Honestly, for what this says about Batman, 27 above Lost Episode, Cheer also does, here's the thing though, Cheer also says some things fundamental about Batman. I just think I agree with them less because Cheer is the, the Jason Todd story that winds up ending with his his deepest desire is to have peace with, with his family. But it also implies that, you know, he also really, really wants Joker dead. And I think that adds a little bit of a sour note to that more heartfelt moment. I could certainly see putting this above Lost Episode. Batman 66 is a personal treasure of mine. Uh, we need to read more of it. We do. For the show. I, uh, I got all, I think, all five volumes. And that's not to say anything about the little side stories that they, they did. But it's at 28 just because of the creative team and wow. how amazing that was. So, yeah, I can, I can live with this as the new uh, 28. Okay, the nobody at 28. This one is a little-known gem, everyone, and is well worth your time. 
again, Matt picked some good ones tonight. Our second story is Dark Genesis. This is Detective Comics Volume 1, numbers 622 to 624. The writer is John Ostrander. Pencils are by Flint Henry and Mike McCone. Inks are by Henry and Jose Marzon Jr. Colors by Adrienne Roy. Letters by Todd Klein and edited by Denny O'Neill. The cover dates are October to December of 1990. An unauthorized comic book has begun to spread a new take on Batman, one that is considerably darker and more supernatural than the real thing. And this comic has inspired a killer who is taking lives in the name of Batman. And the real Dark Knight must find a way to stop both the killer and the comic. We've had one Ostrander story on here before. Uh, the Spectre, Savage Innocence, where the Joker and the Spectre run afoul of each other. And I am an unabashed fan of Ostrander as a writer, especially in the 80s and 90s DC stuff. The Spectre, Suicide Squad, Firestorm, Martian Manhunter. He wrote some of the best superhero comics of the 80s and 90s. And I'm looking forward to eventually doing an episode of some of the other Ostrander Batman stories. But this one, this one is weird in the best possible way. Oh, this is some cool shit. Especially in that it's a comic within a comic. And they had the great sense to bring in somebody with an indie style that is just fucking bonkers. Like, man, this is this is wild. Flint Henry draws the comic within the comic and Mike McCone draws the real world Gotham stuff. Flint Henry worked with Ostrander on the latter 20 or so issues of Ostrander's creator owned Grimjack series and eventually does a man bat miniseries with, I think, Chuck Dixon. Can you look at his style and think about him drawing a man bat miniseries? Oh, I wish it wasn't with Chuck Dixon, but yeah, that does sound great. There's that, but the, the art is pretty freaking cool with you know him drawing Man Bat. Yeah, this is, I feel, very much in conversation with comics of that era. We're in 1990, so we're not quite at the image revolution yet, but we're definitely into the grim and gritty era. And this feels to me like it is riffing on a comic called Faust that was coming out around this time. And it ran from 1987 until 2000 something. But Jeez. it took like... It only ran 25 issues, but <laughs> 15 issues, but it came out like one a year. But it was this incredibly gory, incredibly violent. Like if you Google Faust comic, you'll see like even the cover on number one. I It's absolutely riffing on that, I feel. And well, what did you ask me when over Slack earlier? I asked if Ostrander had invented Spawn because let me tell you the origin, dear readers, for this faux Batman. So uh, Satan calls out to God in hell, which is fucking gorgeous. Like it's this lake of fire and Satan is like this fire creature and he's just calling out into the dark abyss of, of heaven. Like you don't see God. Like I just love, I love the art here. But Satan's like, 
okay god i fucking give up let's make peace i'm tired of all this please i'm sorry i fucked up i'm real sorry uh and god's like hey there's nothing you can do about it there's evil on earth you've already fucked all this shit up to hell you know what are you gonna do and and he eventually works out this deal with satan okay if you can find a body to inhibit on the earth and if you can cleanse the earth of all evil Meanwhile, God's like, uh, he's not going to be able to do it. Yeah, I'm just, I'm just setting Satan up to fail. If you can cleanse the earth of all evil, okay, we can make peace. And so Satan sets about to just find a guy, a guy who's ready to, uh, I don't know, become the spawn of Satan, ergo spawn. And he just finds a guy. He's like, yeah, I've, I've done a bunch of stuff and I feel like my life doesn't have meaning. And so, sure. Let's uh, let's cleanse the earth of evil, Satan, and uh, we go from there. Simon Petrarch, the guy who Satan inhabits, this is very much a riff on the shadow because he finds the monastery, and it's it's very very intentionally problematic. The characters, the costumes up there are yellow terror, Asian stereotype costumes. Ostrander and Henry are clearly riffing on that. If this were in something playing that straight, I'd be real uncomfortable. But this is intentional here. And the comic within the comic is bad in the best possible way. Yeah, it's it's just bonkers. Like it's 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 more supernatural. You know, again, Batman is is imbued with the the spirit of Satan. Uh, and and I love this. I fucking love this. Robin is a guardian angel who tricks a child. <laughs> the Joker is Legion. The Joker is all of the demons in hell who are like, wait a minute. You're trying to get out of this? Fuck you. We're all going to inhabit this motherfucker. And we are going to go after you because you're not pulling this. He creates Ace the Bat Hound who turns into the Batmobile. This this is like a a very, very fucked up version of like how holy terror would interpret the Bible and Batman. Like it's it's just that kind of bonkers. And again, you've got to remember Ostrander was a seminarian. Ostrander knows his Bible, he knows his religion. That explains so much. Yeah, he's having fun with it. And in the third issue, when you get Catwoman, who was this plain Jane who sells her soul for beauty and power, she winds up ripping out Petrarch's soul from his body to give the devil free reign. That is prototypical of something Ostrander does with the Spectre. That in the Spectre, the whole point is the reason the Spectre has to be bound to Jim Corrigan is because the angel of vengeance without a human conscience, without something human to anchor him, it's the slaying of the firstborn in Sodom and Gomorrah again. It's wrath without empathy. There's a lot of little bits of things Ostrander will do and deal with on a stronger basis in the specter sort of worked in to some of this stuff meanwhile out in the real world you've got batman dealing with someone who is hacking people up with a machete 
and writing Batman in their blood. And he's killing a, a street hustler who is a, a low-level, non-violent offender, a young interracial couple who were necking in the park, people who aren't committing, maybe they're committing crimes, at least in the case of the, the street thug, but they're not deserving of someone taking a machete to them. What you have here in these three issues are three parallel stories. So you have the comic within the comic, you have the serial killer in Gotham. And then you also have Batman slash Bruce interacting with the comic, its creators, a radio DJ who starts to kind of stoke a moral panic about Batman and the comic. And it's, it's fascinating how all of the, the three stories come together and overlap. The radio thing is great. Because this is late 80s, early 90s. This is maybe not the height of talk radio, of AM talk radio, but this is when your Don Imus, your Howard Stern, your Rush Limbaugh are at their probably most powerful because we don't have the internet just yet. So you're, you're really at a point where talk radio is the main outlet for that particular lunatic frame. I feel like maybe we're just, we're a little bit before the Zenith, because when I think Rush Limbaugh, I think Republican Revolution, 1993, give or take, but this is very much a Morton Downey Jr. era uh, of just, just vile assholes who will get on the air and say anything to juice the crowds, to juice their numbers and the the character we have here is pretty stock but that that's okay right you're 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 kind of you're trying to comment on this entire field and i love his arc like he's like oh this is this is kind of interesting we can get people juiced about this we can get them to call in and talk about it and then we get to the end of that third issue and it's like okay uh oh nobody's talking about batman anymore all right all right we'll move on what's today's outrage yeah, Ostrander hits that right on the head that this guy has no agenda other than his own fame. He doesn't even care about the sponsors. Like there's jokes about him being impatient about the ads. It's it's about attention. It's less about, you know, the ad box. Although I'm sure the ad box don't hurt. If Ostrander was, is he still with us? Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, very good. Uh, if he was doing this today, we would have in one of these one of these moments with uh, with our shock jock, we would have a pivot to something he's selling. Like it would be, you know, Alex Jones's, you know, dick pills, because that's that's how Jones makes his money. It's not on advertising. It is on the dumb shit that he sells people. Let's just date this with a little particular timestamp. It's a bad day for Alex Jones. So it's a good day for everybody else. No, it is. Connecticut court hands down a billion dollars in, uh, in judgments against him. Let me go out of my way to recommend a podcast that does not need my recommendation. Knowledge Fight, a podcast that breaks down Alex Jones on a granular level. Uh, you have no idea, Matt, how much Alex Jones I've listened to by virtue of Knowledge Fight. 
But uh, yeah, those those guys over there, they understand him. They've been watching him. And it's uh, it's it's going to be fascinating to see him continue his career because there's no there's no putting him away. He's going to fundraise off of this decision. He's going to continue to sell his phony dick pills and his supplements. But this does viscerally feel good. Um, And the law side of me, you know, we can we can break down all of the claims against him and what what his judgments were. But it's just it's a moral victory more than anything else. You cannot be a fucking lying scumbag piece of shit and not expect bad things to happen to you. And that's what happened to him today. Good day. It's a good day for everybody else. So while we're talking law, uh, let's talk about the law in this comic. Um, So, so Batman uh, and Bruce, uh, he's somebody speculates, well, gee, you know, the, the Batman wasn't trademarked or copyrighted. And that got me, that got me thinking, uh, speculating so that was that was true right batman was not uh, was not copyrighted uh because it wasn't uh an original work of authorship fixed in a tangible medium right batman had not set out to uh, i don't know write something or create something or or whatever he didn't have any kind of books that he was producing or any kind of movies so yeah bruce would not have a copyright in batman uh, he would likewise not have a trademark in Batman because that is all about identifying the source of goods and commerce. Trademarks only apply when you are selling goods and services, uh, even perhaps a nonprofit. Like I suppose he could argue that the bat symbol is some kind of trademark that stands for his service and what he provides to the community. But and we see how maybe there's some confusion in the marketplace. You know, people think that he is the person in the comic and he's doing these crimes. Anyway, not not a strong trademark claim, I don't think. I was interested in uh, two aspects, the defamation and the privacy law claims in this faux comic. So you do have a broad right to basically report the news without somebody's permission. So if we interpreted this comic as basically the ongoings of Batman in Gotham, that could be a thing that wouldn't need Batman's permission. Uh, But as we see in the comic, it's very supernatural. It's very mystic. It's very violent, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I don't think anything in the comic could be defamatory because a reasonable reader in Gotham would not look at that and say, oh, that is trying to portray a fact. It's not, in, it's not reasonably interpretable as a fact, so it can't be defamatory. And likewise, I don't think he has a privacy law claim either, because again, nobody could read this obviously fanciful, all obviously mystic, supernatural comic book and say that it is some kind of statement of, uh, of truth and reality. So Ultimately, at the end of the day, I don't think Bruce has many claims, but he might be able to argue some kind of trademark theory, maybe, question mark. It's funny. As I read it, what got me to thinking was, okay, this is the moment where as this comic becomes a thing, as they shut it down because they two creators say that they trademarked it together or the publisher and the creator of the comic 
once they shut it down, Bruce just buys the company and maintains the trademark through that. <laughs> uh, it would be through uh, seven different holding companies, seven different shells. But at the end of the day, uh, Wayne Enterprises would own the, the rights to TNT Comics. Absolutely. That's definitely the way you do it. And we haven't even talked a lot about, you know, the, the stuff with those two, the two creators behind the comic with the, the serial killer calling in to the shock jock with Batman's hunt for the serial killer, which is all pretty standard Batman stuff with that, but a well done Batman following procedure kind of deal and i i love the explanation at the end like we don't really see much of his detective work throughout the arc but when he gets to the end batman's basically like this was really fucking easy to figure out guys like right i just figured the crazy people who were just let loose uh i kind of filtered through their their symptoms and their neuroses and i found one that happened to be in the neighborhood of all the killings like Jesus, it was really fucking easy. And then Gordon himself says, wow, this was really just detective work. We could have done this too. We were all too freaked out. Man, we should, we should do better. And we see that the comic and the moral panic does get the city and members of the GCPD turning on Batman, which makes for some story right there that we don't get a lot of time with. I could have used another issue in this arc. Oh, yeah. You bring in so just many things going on here. I could have seen more process work for the uh, the fake comic. The one page we get of it is stunning. Uh, like this meta thing of it's it's a full page of just black and white inks. And you got some thumbs on the page. It's like an artist sitting down to work on this. And I, I like you just don't see that in comics. Like you don't see this kind of meta stuff, you know, uh, very often. Um, reminds me of uh, of Duck Amuck, the uh, the Bugs Bunny short, um, which is is like again, it's it's meta. It's a different context, right? That's funny, but this is just fun, very different thing that you so rarely see in uh, in Batman. And the covers, by the way, the covers in this are by legendary silver golden age Batman artist Dick Sprang, which is such a funny dissonance between an artist who is known for doing these big props on Gotham roofs and all of these horrifying monstrous Batman images. It's a great juxtaposition. Yeah, I, I noticed that too. That's uh, That was a really fascinating choice. And, and good to throw Sprang some work, which I'm sure was at the very tail end of his career. Yeah, yeah. He was, he'd done the occasional pinup here or there for a while, but he hadn't been working regularly in a long time. He passed in 2000, so he'd still you know, had 10 more years, but I don't think he was doing a lot of work in those last 10 years of his life do you have anything else i don't believe so so that means it's time to take detective comics dark genesis and put it on the big board so this is an interesting one because again this is really good 
but it's this is a, a a forgotten gem and i think that's kind of what i was doing with this i was going with three stories that i really like that aren't things that people would be normally seeking out I mean, again, I'm thinking somewhere in the upper middle of the list, 50s, 60s. Uh, let's see. I think it's better than Where Were You the Night Batman Was Killed at 63. Yes. It's uh, cooler. It's weirder. It's more entertaining. And that was an entertaining story. It's more badass. Yeah. I would put it above 59 above Made of Wood, the Ed Brubaker, Batman Green Lantern story. Again, a really good story, some cool detective work in there, but it's kind of just there. It tells its story and it gets that this has much more resonance, much more thought behind it than that story, which is not to say that it's a that's a thoughtless story, but there's a lot Ostrander puts into this story. I would say at this point, the top, ooh, I'd say even going down to 71, 72, 70 or so books are good books. They oh, yeah. really are. Absolutely. Uh, I don't think we can go higher than Hush at 53. No, I agree. I don't think it goes higher than Hush. Okay, now I'm gonna. Now it's it's my birthday, so I'm gonna. Oh you no, no, you meanie! Thrill killer. Where does it stand uh, against thrill killer? Because uh, uh. I think it's either above or below thrill killer. God damn it! I love painted comics so much, but this this art too is spectacular. Jesus, and it's the one of the best uses of multiple pencilers in a comic that I've seen. Yeah, yeah. I can make it the new double nickels because this is a story we could have more of and thrill killer. We got too much of. Okay. So 55 it is. And this as an arc does not have a title. I just went with dark Genesis as that is the title of part one. And that's good enough. And our final story of the night is fool's errand. This is Detective Comics, Volume 1, number 726. The writer is Chuck Dixon. Pencils and inks by Brian Stelfreeze. Colors by Gloria Vasquez and Android Images. Letters by John Costanza and edited by Scott Peterson and Darren Vincenzo. The cover date is October of 1998. Time is running out for a kidnapped little girl, and Batman must turn to the Joker to provide him with what he needs to know to find her. But what is the Joker's motivation for setting these events in motion? Problematic Creator Watch, right out of the gate. It's funny, as we were just talking about Republican rising and right-wing nut jobs, Chuck Dixon remains a right-wing whack job. So, Boo. And we're a pair of leftists, so there you go. Oh, oh here's, here's a depressing thing, Matthew, as we continue in one more side venture into Star Trek. Uh, so, do you see the trailer for Picard Season 3? Mm-hmm. Did you see the little the little taste of Enterprise F? Mm-hmm. So if you're uh, if you know you know anything about Star Trek Online, a little bit, but I've never played. Yeah. So years and years and years ago, they had a design the Enterprise F contest, and it was it was a fan submission, and I was I was a little bit kind of like wondering, okay. You know, you have the F now entering can uh, canon, the Odyssey class. 
by the way, Odyssey class, NCC 170F, entering canon. And I'm like, is, is that original fan going to be properly like compensated? He's going to be recognized. And of course, after the trailer comes out, like people are tweeting him, they're tagging him. And I'm like, oh, let me, let me go like check out the man's timeline. Retweeting Ted Cruz in approval. Oh. So, so the fan behind the new enterprise is a shit bag. I have to be cursed with that knowledge. And now you too have to be cursed with it as well. Oh, wonderful. I feel great about that. So this is a rarity in that this is a comic with Brian Stelfreeze interiors. Stelfreeze is probably best known in bat circles as the artist who did the covers for a large swath of shadow of the bat. The first, I believe 49 issues or so. Uh, Such as the one we just read. Indeed. It's a great cover. And the style of this book is cool because it's alternating between Batman doing, uh, you know, Clarice Starling, Hannibal Lecter thing with the Joker in traditional pages. And then pretty much every other page is a splash of Batman making his way to this little girl who was kidnapped and there's time codes on the bottom of each page. And you're seeing the two times sort of heading towards each other. So it's a smartly constructed story. And it's not obnoxious, right? In the hands of Tom King, this would be really fucking irritating, but you know, there's not some big panel of 13 minutes ago 45 minutes ago, 26 minutes from now. Like it's just just an unobtrusive, just little digital clock down there at the bottom or at the top. You know, it relies on the reader to kind of understand what's going on. And I, I appreciate that. Like the, the gimmick here does not beat you about the head and face. No. And Dixon has always written a really strong Joker. Dixon wrote a lot of Joker stories And this is a Joker who is both monstrously evil and playful. This Joker is all about the give and take with Batman. He basically talked to the guy in the cell next to him and egged him on to commit this kidnapping on the anniversary of Jason Todd's death. In truly uh, Hannibal Lecter fashion. Yeah. And so now... The kidnapper has committed suicide, so there's no option other than to go to the Joker. And I love the fact that Batman has to just play this verbal sparring match with Joker. However, I I am somewhat befuddled by why in the hell they would ever put the Joker in anywhere where he has someone in the cell next door to him. No, no, that seems like uh, uh, a situation where you're asking for trouble. Of course, Joker's going to be able to convince somebody to swallow their tongue or to just drive the guards into madness. I, I love the thing. What, 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 oh, he asked for a television remote and then uh, he turned it into a, a stun gun. Yeah. Yeah, it's great. Only if you've got to have people next to the Joker, it's got to be another serious Arkham whack job 
with a really strong personality. Because if you put someone that the Joker can influence next to the Joker, he's going to influence them. It needs to be Two-Face or Scarecrow or Maxi Zeus. or Riddler. Riddler. Someone whose own mania is going to not let the Joker influence them. Because anyone who the Joker can play with, he's going to play with. Mad Hatter seems like a very bad idea. Yeah, the Joker would get the Hatter to, you know, do something for him. The Joker would pretend to be the White Rabbit or some other Wonderland character and play off the Hatter's particular insanity. Modern day interpretation of Bane seems also like a bad idea. But I think the original Bane, as conceived and as we see in uh, first issues of Nightfall, I think would be able to resist him. I think Tinian brought that version of Bane back. I think the Bane of Joker is very much back to that Machiavellian master. Uh, you got to take off the mask for me to really to really see that that space seed version of of Bane. Don't you see him unmasked at least briefly in Joker 14 or 15? If you say it, I believe it, but I don't remember it. I'm trying because I mean, he's all muffled up for so much of that walking around with Cressida from the Court of Owls. For some reason, I think you see him take it off before he pulls the mask back on to reveal that he's Bane. Gail Simone also has him unmasked quite a bit in her Secret Six run, where she does a lot of stuff with the Bane as seeking redemption. But, well, well, that's that's neither here nor there. There's no Bane in this story. Zero Bane. I love the way that Stelfreeze does the action sequences. And we're in the post-cataclysm era of Gotham. So Batman has to go and find this little girl in a ferry that was cracked in half by the earthquake. And so as the tide rises, she is going to drown. And so Batman has to get in there and stop it from happening. So I think the action is good. I'm not sure if a lot of this other stuff works for me. I didn't find the Joker to be very interesting. The brickwork in the cell just comes off as weird to me. And I think part of this, part of this is the overall coloring is not great. I am not in love with these interiors. This 1998, and when you see the, the colorist cited as Android images, this is the real beginnings of computer coloring. This is when computer coloring is still a kind of a new thing. And yeah, this is what you get in early computer colors. I think Stelfreeze's best stuff is when he's doing covers and when he's doing pinups and those action pages in between are pinups basically makes sense yeah the the sequential is less exciting now what i want to get at and i'm curious about your thoughts the final thesis of this joker's reason for doing this and again i will read from the comic i know you batman when you approach a hostage situation like I put you in tonight, you probably assume the victim is already dead. Oh, sure. You do everything you can to save them anyway, because that's you. But you don't really dare hope, do you? But after tonight, 
you'll never be able to do that again, will you? Fucking demented. Yes. I'm sitting back and I'm thinking to myself, is that really how Bruce would think? Is that really how he goes into these situations? Thinking that he has to assume the victim is already dead. And I'm not sure how true that rings for me. It's, I don't know. Did you have a thought on how that, how that played? I wonder if it's not so much a hope that the victim is alive so much as a, maybe a sense of trust that can I trust what the Joker is saying? Oh, oh I certainly can't trust the, what the Joker is saying. Like he's, he's obviously nuts, but you know, I'll, I'll just, I'll play along and to see what happens. It's hard to figure out what might be in Bruce's brain, but I like the twisted logic here. The idea that Joker did a good thing for an absolutely abhorrent reason. And that works for me. Even if I, even if I'm like you, I, I can't precisely parse out whether Batman would believe that somebody was dead and that he is in essence just going through the motions. I, I don't know whether I can figure that out or not, but I love the storytelling beat here. I agree with that entirely. I agree that that's a perfect Joker mindset. That's like, sure, I'll tell you where she is and I'll absolutely let you save her so you're never able to go in the same way and that every time you don't save the victim now, it'll hurt even more. That is absolute Joker. I cut his heart out with a spoon. Why a spoon? Boon, cousin, because it will hurt more. Yes. The story is stronger than the art here. Yes. And it's going back and I remember loving the story. I remember really enjoying the art. And I think I have soured on the art a little more over the years. But there are the final page of Batman holding the little girl Again, the colors are, you're right, the colors are weird, but I like that image. Again, because it's a pinup. It's Batman you know, walking out of the, the water with the girl in his arms and this look on his face. And it's a strong page. It's a well-constructed page, even if the colors aren't great for it. Of course, here's the thing I wonder, right? I, if Stelfreeze is comfortable in paints... Why not just paint the whole thing? And again, it's monthly. Maybe you got to put this thing out on time, but there's there's so much lead here, right? This is just a one-off story. They got to know, oh, hey, you know, we'll bring Selfreeze in to do this one issue. Give him six months to do it, right? It feels like you could have worked this out. You'd think. And by the way, when you look at that, this is Detective 726. Counting Detective 27 as the first, This would be the 700th appearance of Batman in Detective Comics. Mm. So it is in itself a significant issue, which is why I feel like they wanted to do this Joker story. But yeah, I think it would have been better painted by Stelfreeze. And and one other question for you is you're also the one who tends to have things with this. What did you think of the lettering on the narration blocks on those pinups? I didn't hate it. The it's the the scratchy 
Joker lettering that I tend to to dislike more. This was just whimsical. And I think that that plays okay. I was curious because it was like it didn't bug me as much as it's things like that have bugged me elsewhere. So I was curious if it particularly rubbed you the wrong way. Yeah, my basic idea behind lettering is one, I have to be able to read it. If I can't read it, you have done a bad job. And two, I don't want it to try too hard. And this was readable and not uh, not too uh, tryhardy. So it worked. Okay. I don't have much else here. This was the you know shortest story of the night or the least dense, at least. I don't have anything else. So that means it's time for Detective Comics number 726, Fool's Errand on the big board. Okay. I mean, I think this is is lower than the other two, but it's still not, you know, anywhere near bottom of the barrel. No. Let's go with another Detective Comics standalone issue, 822 down at 80, Enigma Consulting Detective. I think that one is probably a little bit better. The art and story work together better. It establishes that fun little new status quo for the Riddler. I don't think it's much lower than that. No. But I think it's still not quite there. Uh, Now, 86, now here we go, another Joker story is going sane, where the Joker thinks he killed Batman and his mind snaps and he's suddenly Joseph Kerr. I think that's meteor. Yeah, I think this is better than 88. This is better than Sword of Azrael. Yeah, I'd agree with that. As a matter of fact, I think that might be where it goes. Above that is the Superman annual where we see the future with Superman and Batman and Superman is trying to do an ends justify the means. And the first time we see Superman kill Martian Manhunter. Yeah, where uh, we totally didn't crib uh, for injustice. I think this goes in between those two. The new number 88. Look at that. We are now up to 177 stories on there. We've been at this a while. That must mean that our next episode will be our 60th. It will. And it is going to be another Patreon backer request from one Mrs. Abigail Hartbaum. Oh, I hear she's nice. Yeah. Pretty great. This is going to be three stories of Batman versus drugs. Bum, bum, bum. <laughs> we would like to thank our Patreon backers Dan Grote, June, Conduit of Outdated Joke Names, Jen, come on, Josh Wheel, Mrs. Abigail Hartbaum. You're the best sweetheart. Asimov Fangirl, Tony Thornley, Sam Hopper, John Wickham, Robert Secundus and Tim Rooney for their support. You can follow this podcast on Twitter at Batchat Comics, and the show is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Amazon Music slash Audible, and at ComicsXF.com, where new episodes drop every Thursday. You can support the podcast on Patreon, where you can get shoutouts, bonus content, pick a story, and even come on the show. If you want to hear more of my ramblings, mostly about three C's, comics, cinema, and cats, you can follow me on Twitter at MattLaz1013. And I'm at Will Nevin. I'm also out of here. Good night, Huntsville.
And be sure to visit ComicsXF at ComicsXF.com or at ComicsXF on Twitter for our weekly Bat Chat roundup of new Bat books. For my other show, WMQ&A, where my longtime best friend Dan Grote and I interview comics creators, retailers, publishers, journalists, and other related tradespeople, as well as all the other stuff Will and I are writing. And stay safe out there, folks. Gotham is not a place to be after dark. <laughs>